when you get to the end of Exodus, there is a climactic and explosive announcement. The filling of the tabernacle takes place. The glory and cloud of God consumes the portable tent. And the presence of Yahweh has drawn near to sinners in a way that is an overwhelming scene. That's not the only time something is inaugurated. In the book of Leviticus, chapters 8 and 9, there is an inauguration of the priesthood, which would serve at that particular tabernacle. There is ritual. There is shedding of blood. There is cleansing. People are being set apart as priests from Levi for that important work. There is in Numbers chapter 7, the dedication of the altar at that tabernacle where the priests will officiate sacrifices at such an altar. Number seven was a long 89-verse chapter of a 12-day period of giving. Some of you, you, you've recovered from the chapter, I know. It's 89 verses. And we, we thought about the third longest chapter in the whole Bible together in one night. And all of those gifts and offerings over a 12-day period of giving, marking the dedication of the altar at the tabernacle where the priests will serve. The tabernacle and priesthood receive these very jubilant and celebratory passages. Sometimes much ink is spent on telling the details, chronologuing the events. In Numbers 8, there is another section of inauguration. We see that this, this evening in verses 5 to 26. This is not about the altar. This is not about the tabernacle as a whole. This is not about the priests from Aaron. This is about a group from Levi who are not priests. We call them the Levites. Just to be clear, every priest is a Levite. Not every Levite is a priest. The way I want us to think about it on the bottom right of the board is that Levi, who was a son of Jacob, he had three sons, Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. And through Kohath, though I've not listed all the sons, uh, there is a descendant, a line, Kohath to Amram, leading to Aaron. Which means the priesthood from Aaron and his four sons two of which were struck dead in Leviticus uh, chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron and his sons will form the priesthood, but that means not everybody from Levi is a priest. There are plenty of other descendants and other siblings and their respective descendants that will form what are called the Levites. Chapter 8, verses 5 to 26 is about the Levites. Not about the priest specifically or the dedication of the altar. Those things have been told. But Numbers has already introduced us to these figures. Chapter 7, not chapter 7, chapter 3 is about the duties of the Levites. Chapter 4 breaks down the various Kohathite, Gershonite, and Merarite lines about who carries what. We seem to have uh, two main roles that the Levites will have. The Levites will function as guardians of the tabernacle. And they will function as transporters of its holy vessels and the non-holy elements like the frames and the linens and the curtains, those various things. So both guardianship and transportation are two major ways. I think we could also add, supplementing that, that they will aid the priests in any of the non-priestly work that would help the service of the tabernacle moving forward. That would just be under a broad miscellaneous category we might consider it. But they are a group set apart. They are from a particular tribe, and therefore they will have a special service of, let's call it, consecration. What we're going to see tonight is the consecration of the Levites, where the Lord says in this passage, the Levites shall be mine. 
Now, they are forbidden to enter the tabernacle, which means they can enter the courtyard, but they're not priests. So they can't go into the holy tent, and they can't certainly go behind the holy veil where only the high priest will go. So while these Levites don't go into the tabernacle, they will be of some needed and long-term assistance of the priesthood. The Levite work is necessary. Let's think about the numbers of the priests at the start of the tabernacle services. How many priests do we got? Well, I could mark out Nadab and Abihu's names. They have been struck dead in Leviticus chapter 2. With the inauguration of the tabernacle, you have Aaron, and he has two sons right now, Eliezer and Ithamar. Okay, well, that means the needs for help and assistance are quite great. And the Levites will be a huge blessing, and in chapters 3 and 4 of Numbers, attention was given to them. Here is the way our, 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 the flow of the consecration will go. First, they have to be physically cleansed. This is a very important ritual where they are being set apart through various acts of physical cleansing. But the steps of the rituals will also go to a second part, where in the ceremony they are presented as sacrifices, what we would call a wave offering, and they are uh, presented along with certain animal sacrifices that will be offered. There is, in other words, both a physical cleansing element to the ceremony and the offering of sacrifices in this ceremony. Um, One other thing to note before we look at some of these details. The placement of this passage is right after the seven lamps on the lampstand that we saw briefly last week in verses 1 to 4. Not a long passage. It's about furniture placement. I suggest it's about more than that because the lampstand on the table of bread symbolizes God's light and face upon the people of Israel with blessing. Uh, So the position of the furniture is actually quite important. But also what's coming in chapter 9 is the celebration of the second Passover. A very important time to mark the months that have passed. The first Passover, of course, was done under great anxiety and distress and intrigue throughout the land. Firstborn were going to be struck dead if the blood wasn't covering the doorposts and the lintel. Pharaoh and his forces pursued the Israelites to the Red Sea. This uh, escape through the Exodus and the 10th plague and the start of that Passover festival had a whole host of incredible events around it. Chapter 9 is the second Passover. Why does that matter? Because the firstborn were spared in the Israelite households. Firstborns were spared because the blood covered the lintels and the doorposts. What God says in Numbers is that the Levites will replace the firstborn. So while the firstborn have been redeemed and are mine, I will take the Levites in the place of the firstborn. The placement of this cleansing ceremony appears right before the second Passover where the firstborn were saved. And then these Levites, the people who replaced the firstborn as belonging to God for special work. Let's look together at the ritual. There are nine steps to the ritual of consecration that begin in verses 5 and following. Verses 5 to 14, the ritual starts out like this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. And then he tells you how that will be. So this is the big idea. Let's set them apart. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them in verse 7. First of all, sprinkle the water of purification upon them. This is step number one. The Levites are sprinkled with water. There is some debate on where the water is to come. 
uh, from because in the courtyard there is a bronze laver or a bronze basin where holy water will be for the use of the priests. Keep in mind, however, that this uh, Levite group that are not priests don't have direct access to these vessels or even what would go, they're, they're not to have that kind of contact. Perhaps then this water is not from that basin itself, but from elsewhere in the camp. It does not tell you where the water must come from. But they are sprinkled with what's called this water of purification upon them, and this is to give a visible sense of cleansing. Now, of course, these are sinners. Yes, they are among a tribe uh, of sinners who are the Levites and among an encampment of Israelites, 12 tribes who are sinners. This outward cleansing is to show visibly that we are sprinkling water on them and not everybody because what the role is is unique for this tribe that's not shared by every tribe. The second step is shaving. It says in verse uh, 7, they shall, you shall let them go with a razor over their whole body. And yes, I think that we are to imply not just their head, right, but this whole body as the language would indicate. And this seems to be a, an, an effort to visibly return to the state of innocence and newborn life, uh, which would later, through biological development and growth, result in the growth of hair. But here, the Levites shave their whole bodies, as well as having water sprinkled on them, so that these first two steps involve a symbolic return to a cleansed and uh, visibly innocent uh, symbolic state. It's about putting forward a, 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 a picture of purity and cleansing. Third, step number three is that the Levites will wash their clothes. Again, an emphasis on cleansing so that both their bodies and what their bodies are going to wear have been, let's call it again, reset or clean slate, if you will. Already we're noticing some differences when the priests were ordained and consecrated in the book of Leviticus. We're told that the priests were anointed with water. The Levites are sprinkled with water. It doesn't use the language that the Levites were anointed. That's a very particular role given to the priests and an image and verb applied to the kings of Israel. I don't think we should say the Levites were anointed in the same way. That doesn't seem to be the case. We also wouldn't say that the Levites were made holy. It is clear in Leviticus and Exodus before it that the priests are set apart as holy, but that's because of the nature of their work at the tabernacle. The nature of the work of the Levites is different. And I don't think we should imagine that they attain a kind of status among the people as holy in an individual sense. Yes, we want to say corporately, the Israelites are called to be holy as the Lord thy God is holy. Yes and amen. Corporately, that's true. Individually, the offices and status and roles of the people differ depending on the lineage. These Levites are not considered holy like the priests, their counterparts. We also notice that in the priesthood ordination, there is a shedding of blood and sprinkling of blood, applying it to their thumb and big toe and earlobe, and none of that's happening to the Levites here. There is some difference like that that we could note. Uh, so just to reiterate a few of those as I did. Then step number four. Uh, we're told in, um, in, well, verse 7 reiterates at the end, wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. That's step 3. We go to verse 8 for step 4. Then let them take a bull from the herd and its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, and you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. 
the idea of taking simply means at this point, it's not been sacrificed. It is to be taken to the tabernacle at the altar that's been dedicated, according to number seven. This offering is once again an act of cleansing. Cleansing is the big uh, deal here. That's the common denominator. Washing the clothes, shaving the body, sprinkling with water, bringing these sacrifices. It's cleansing and consecration for special work, and these specific animals are named. It then tells us that these sacrifices are to be uh, brought, according to verse 8. We're told then in verses 9 and 10, and you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Well, now we have not just the bringing of sacrifices, but an assembly of other Israelites who will lay their hands. This is step number five. The Israelites lay their hands on the Levites. You say, well, wait a second. The Israelites are an awfully big people. Uh, How are we going to get all those many thousands of hands upon these? Well, think about it in a representative way. Um, This is not every single individual Israelite is getting their hand in there through the massive crowd. This is to say the Israelites, probably through the leaders named in number seven, who bring those dedicatory offerings to the altar, they're probably the kinds of folks that are laying hands. This is to symbolize outwardly we are identifying with these people. We are commissioning and consecrating them. They represent us. We should put together then the paired notions of consecration and representation. The Levites are one of the 12 tribes. Their work is done for to, in order to aid the priests, but on behalf of the Israelites. Remember, God had consecrated the firstborn. The Levites replaced them. There is a representative role these Levites have. I think the laying on of hands recognizes it. It's a solemn ritual to place the hands on the people. And then we have the sixth step. Verse 11 tells us, Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. And you heard that right. They shall offer the Levites. Well, wait a second. What are, we, what are we talking about them with sacrificial language? You know, you offer the grain offering and you offer the bulls or you offer a goat. What do you mean offer the Levites as a wave offering? Well, listen, no human beings are climbing on the altar here, okay? No one's getting in the, in the court, climbing up the steps, and actually getting on the altar. A wave offering means here they are dedicating the Israelites, uh, the Israelites are dedicating the Levites publicly. Aaron seems to be leading this charge. He, in verse 11, is the offerer of these Levites. And it is an act that symbolizes they are dedicated like an offering. They are, let's use this language, they are a living sacrifice. That's what they are. These Levites are living sacrifices. They are wave offerings here. And maybe even they were given a side-to-side motion. Sometimes wave offering language for an actual um, animal is, or a piece of an animal uh, seems to denote this, that it would be lifted, moved from side to side. Um, so, some scholars have wondered if Aaron is actually going up behind each of the Levites, sort of moving them side to side on the shoulder. I don't know what we're to envision here. That would, that would feel a little strange. But it would still communicate something special is happening, if not also a little weird. Um, the Levites are offered as a wave offering. According to one Old Testament writer, the Levites did not merely witness offerings. They were also the offerings, living sacrifices offered to God for his use. And then we come to step number seven. 
Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls. Okay, lots of laying on of hands. Do you catch the directions? The Israelites lay hands on the Levites. The Levites lay their hands on the animals. All of this is to symbolize representative offering. The bulls are going to be sacrificed. So in step seven here, the Levites will first lay their hands on the bulls to identify with them. Laying the hands on the head of a bull is very Levitical language. Leviticus 1 to 7 is very clear that these people who bring an offering lay their hand upon the head and like pressing it on as if to get inside the animal. It is to identify with the brought offering. Then we come to step number number 8. The animal sacrifices are offered. It tells us in verse 12, Not only shall they lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, you shall offer the one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. You see, these Israelites are aware that we do not have a sinless representative going before us. Aaron, our high priest, is a sinner. His sons are sinners. In fact, he used to have more sons, but now has two out of four because of sin and transgression. And then we have these Levites as a whole, the non-priests. They're not sinless either. Therefore, they're coming to God in our place And atonement is necessary for their sins. So the symbolism of these animal offerings communicates the importance of drawing near to God through a substitute because we ourselves are in need of grace and mercy. These Levites were not immune. These Levites were not innocent of this. Even though they have been sprinkled with water, even though their bodies have been shaved, and even though they have washed all their clothes, they are sinners. You don't wash that away with water. The animal sacrifices are offered in step number eight. Uh, We're then told in step number nine, they are presented as a wave offering again. So verse 13 could just restate what had earlier happened, maybe summarizing it. This could be a separate step as if they are then presented once more. Perhaps that's the case. I'm including it as a ninth step in case. Verse 13, you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons, and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus, verse 14, you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, says, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And to present yourself holy and acceptable and as a living sacrifice is quite something to say to the Jewish Gentile Christian church. People who in the main, in the majority, would not have been from the tribe of Levi or certainly not from Aaron's line. These Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian readers, though, are recognizing that setting apart groups in the Old Testament It also foreshadowed the coming and fuller and more glorious reality of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might think of it as the Levites are a kind of living sacrifice to Yahweh, which in Christ Jesus we shall all be in him. We are living sacrifices. Now, we're also told the purpose for consecrating the Levites. Just a handful of verses here, beginning in verse 15 and through verse 19. The purpose for consecrating the Levites is to make you think about what happened at the Exodus. Even though there's a second Passover coming in Numbers 9, these verses here are going to make you think backward. Here's the way it works in verse 15. After that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting, 
when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. The firstborn is the one that opens the womb. He is reminding us that instead of the firstborn of Israel, which were redeemed and taken to Yahweh at the Exodus, we are seeing the Levites come in their place. According to Numbers chapters 3 and 4, not only are the duties of the different Levitical descents through Kohath, Gershom, and Merari laid out, we're also given numbers of the Levites who are past the age of infancy and above, so that of all the firstborn, there can be an equal number of Levites, one for one, to, sure, to truly give you a numerical replacement, quite literally. We're told in verse 17, For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them, firstborn Israelites, for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. The Levites are a group from Jacob's line that, in other words, are a kind of um, a, a replacement and redeeming group because instead of the redemption of the firstborn belonging to God, they have taken the place as a representative. And then in verse 19, I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel. We're noticing here a couple roles we can immediately acknowledge. They replace the firstborn of the Israelites. That's number one. But secondly, they're given to the priests to serve and aid them. It tells us to do the service, in verse 19, for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. They are to, in other words, pay attention to the very careful Levitical sacrificial tabernacle regulations, and there are many. Leviticus, and even Exodus before it, lays out very specific regulations in the approach of Yahweh in the most holy place. And these Levites have a role to help the priests ensure that these regulations are kept. One of the important duties they have is to guard the holy place, to guard the vessels that had been set apart for such special use. Though the Levites will not directly handle those vessels, instead the priests alone will, the Levites will prohibit and prevent an unnecessary breach of such sanctity and sacredness. Uh, we could list a few functions of the Levites to this point. They serve the priests at the tabernacle. Number two, they help to replace the redeemed firstborn from the Israelites. And, in verse, and then thirdly, they are a kind of hedge of protection of the holy things themselves. All of this is in the interest of Israel. How do we know that? Well, you know, the end of verse 19 did say, so that no plague may be among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near. The Levites should care about the spiritual well-being of the Israelites and the approach that those people have to the Lord. The Levites would um, set the people up in a horrible sense of uh, endangerment to be ensnared in any breaking of regulation or violation of sanctity. The Levites, it's in their best interest and for the good of Israel to maintain the Levitical regulations. They must know, therefore, what their role is and then what they're not to do all for the sake of the safety and well-done approach of the Israelites. Well, that's through verse 19. 
there is a summary of completion of the ritual. Verses 20 through 22 are very easy. It basically tells us what they were just told they did. And it's always good when the Israelites are given such clear instructions in these early chapters. Their obedience is highlighted. We want to celebrate that. I've told you over and over again, though, that is not a trajectory the people will maintain. It will come to a point where the rebellion and disobedience of Israel, that is what the text will emphasize um, in these narratives. For now, the obedience of Israel is something we are glad to, to see. Verse 20 tells us, thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel to the Levites. I think that means, you see those nine steps? They went and did all of it. The Levites did what they were supposed to do. Israelites did what they were supposed to do. Aaron's role in any of it, he led it faithfully. And then it tells us, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Israelites, the people of Israel did to them. And the Levites, in verse 21, purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes. Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord, which is symbolic. Nobody actually lost their life there. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. After that, the Levites went in to do their service at the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons. As the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. The completion of the consecration ritual. However, we are reminded that these roles are not carried on in the Israelite camp of these Levites till death. Instead, there is a time in which service begins and a time that that service will come to an end in the life of these non-priestly Levites. Uh, we're reminded about the time of service in these final few verses. Verse 23 through 26. Uh, first couple of verses put it this way. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years old, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. This time of service has a, a specific detail I want to pay attention to. Earlier in Numbers chapter 4, we were told that they begin their service at age 30 and then through age 50. And much Old Testament scholarship ink has been spilt thinking about the difference here, why 25, and then earlier in Numbers 4, the age is 30. I did point out to you in Numbers 7, beginning in verse 1, that there was a time difference here on the day when Moses finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed it, various things took place. Numbers 8 is still in that early tabernacle inauguration. When we get to chapter 4 of Numbers, if you start at the beginning of the book of Numbers, there in the second um, month, in the second year, we're told in Numbers chapter 1, the Lord spoke on the first day of the second month in the second year after they came out of Egypt, after the tabernacle was set up. In other words, age 25 is the earlier date chronologically. I hope that you follow that. Uh, it's a lot to think through. The age of 25 was the earlier date, or earlier age chronologically, though in the text we first came to age 30. And there are ser several suggestions about why this might be. First of all, in the rabbis' writings themselves, Rabbis said that there was a five-year period of apprenticeship, which means that 
No one turns 30 and is thrust into the work of the Levites, nor would it have been the case probably for the priesthood, but instead there is a training and apprenticeship for a lengthy period of time. Now you might think, well, five years, and that's kind of a lot, starting at age 25 and then sort of kicking into gear formally at at, uh, age 30. But again, the, the role of the tabernacle in Israel's life, the importance of serving the priesthood in the ways the Levites would, That is not some small task that ought to be rushed, but something perhaps given multiple years of preparation. Okay, we could grant that. The rabbis wrote about that. That could alone explain it here. We also know that something else took place on the day that the priesthood was ordained. And in that period of the tabernacle's inauguration and the beginning of the priestly work, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead. And some scholars have suggested that due to the age of Nadab and Abihu, the age was raised to age 30 to prevent perhaps even younger recklessness that led to the deaths of Nadab and Abihu. That could also be an explanation there. Um, And it could also be that simply there's another alternative that the text simply doesn't tell us and no one has implied at all. It is clear that age 50 seems to be a retirement age. Could we use that word, right? So the retirement age of the Levites is age 50. It tells us in verse 25, from that age they shall withdraw from the duty of the service. Now, um, there are some practical uh, reasons for this. I want you to know that um, when they are transporting the materials, a vast amount of things must be transported by the Levites And they didn't want people older than 50 doing all of that labor when it could be done by people from 30 to 50. Uh, That's not because somebody 50 or older couldn't do it. But in the plan and wisdom of God, that was a major part of the Levites' work. As they're traveling and as the tabernacle is moved and as it is reset up, all of that stuff has to happen. And the idea of their uh, able-bodiedness seems to be a factor from ages 30 and up and maybe it would have been more problematic from 50 and up. And so this, uh, this policy is put into place that age 50, they're to withdraw from the duty of, and serve no more in that sense. They may minister in verse 26 by keeping guard, which means they do not stop any and all help and service to the people of Israel in every detailed way. In fact, they might actually continue in a role that continues to um, uh, prevent breaches and violations of the sanctity of the place. It would require less physical labor from them, no doubt. So they minister to their brothers from that point onward, but doing no specific service that would aid the priests, certainly with the transportation of materials. It is interesting that by the time of David, King David, who begins to reign in about 1010 BC, that um, the Levites are not having to go through regular transportation of the tabernacle. Let's think about why. You have attention being given to a particular city in the life of David. Where in 2 Samuel and in chapter 6, he calls for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem. And then under David's son Solomon, a temple is going to be built in the 900s BC over a period of seven years. All of that on a practical level will remove the need for tearing down and setting up and tearing down and setting up and transporting from here to there. Once the temple is built, this much earlier transportation set of duties 
evaporates, doesn't it? Because now you've got the stable temple in one location where the city of the king shall be. And at that temple, all of its holy vessels are built there and, um, and kept there. Uh, that, that helps us to see how in the book of First Chronicles, the actual duties of carrying the tabernacle uh, have been eliminated. And um, you, you can even have Levites um, being incorporated starting at around age 20. I think we should recognize these ages of 25 or 30 in Numbers, and even down to age 20 in 1 Chronicles 23, are helpful to see practical considerations probably determine the ages in different periods of Israel's history. What needed to be done, and by whom, and how often. And as certain duties changed, certain other adjustments in age would follow. In other words, the age of the, the priests uh, or the uh, Levites' arrival to duty wasn't like a moral law of the Ten Commandments that would never have been altered. Instead, this was something that was a practical consideration, no doubt, um, in, in the main. Another thing to keep in mind is that given how important the Levites are, it is striking that the Lord Jesus himself is not a Levite. And it's good for us to recognize how Hebrews makes a big deal out of this. We're, we're told quite explicitly in Hebrews chapter 7, we have a high priest who did not come from the tribe of the priests in the Old Testament. While the Levites were a tribe that would not only aid the priests, but through Kohath and Amram and Aaron, actual priests would come, the Lord Jesus descends from the tribe of Judah. He descends from the tribe of Judah that a particular pattern reaching much earlier than Exodus would be fulfilled. That in the book of Genesis and in chapter 14, a man named Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. These Levites are not kings. The descendants from Levi, specifically these priests from Aaron, they're not kings either. That means the Lord Jesus embodies realities that fulfill an earlier pattern than the Levites, even though the work of the Levites would certainly foreshadow what he came to do. After all, the Lord Jesus has come to bring redemption and to deliver God's people and to be a ransom. And just as the Levites served as a kind of a replacement and representative for the firstborn of Israel, the Lord Jesus is that perfect representative and redeemer for all of God's people. We even speak about ourselves as living sacrifices. Think about how the role of the Levites to be these wave offerings for the people of Israel is, is given even greater significance for the identity of the church. We're in Romans chapter 12. We are living sacrifices to be holy and acceptable to God. We devote to God our lives, our bodies. We give to the Lord what we can of our lives um, in our words, our actions, our choices, our plans. We are trying to submit ourselves for the service of the holy God for the good of his church, for the good news of the gospel, and all that he might be honored and glorified. We even speak in 1 Peter of the priesthood of the believer. We get this language all the way to Israel, from Israel's identity in Exodus 19. They are a kingdom of priests. To the church of the Lord Jesus, we are a priesthood of believers. We are living sacrifices offered to God, the best of the kind of wave offerings you can imagine. It is true then no Levite could carry on their ministry forever. No priest could carry on their ministry forever. No Levite, as well-intended and lofty as an ambition they might have, could be a defender of the sanctity of the holy place forever. Those Levites would grow. 
and they would age, and they would become weak, and they would eventually be claimed by death itself. No Levite could serve at the tabernacle eternally. What you needed, what you needed was an obedient defender and representative of Israel who could rise from the dead. If you could get that, then you could achieve something in the plan of God that was greater than anything that sacrificial system ever knew. Let's pray.